country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Welcome to Talking Indonesia. This is Jackie Baker coming to you from Murdoch University, which stands on the unceded land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. As my guest today, Agung Wardana, points out, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recognises Indonesia as one of the 17 megabiodiverse countries worldwide. But as the IPCC says, this means that Indonesia is also uniquely vulnerable to climate change, more so than any other country in the region. And yet, Indonesia is the eighth biggest greenhouse gas emitter in the world, largely due to its forestry and energy sectors. Indonesia's own constitution provides for environmental protection, for the right to have a home and to enjoy a healthy environment. Sustainability is also mentioned in the National Development Plan, but Indonesia has no specific law to deal with its national action or its international commitments, and its pledges to reduce carbon emissions by 29% are regarded as highly insufficient, not only because coal continues to make up Indonesia's main source of energy, but also because Indonesia plans to increase its dependence on coal by 2030. And so this leads Agung Wardana, my guest today, to call Indonesia a paradox of the Anthropocene. The question he brings to the table is whether law and legal activism, that great unraveler of paradoxes and contradictions, can it help to safeguard Indonesia's environment? This is the question that drives the work of Agung Wardana, Alexander von Humboldt Fellow at the Max Planck Institute in Germany and Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law, Gajamada University. Welcome to Talking Indonesia, Agung. Hello, Jackie. Uh, thank you for having me. Okay, so this is a big topic and your research is very comprehensive. So I'm going to try and unpack it a piece at a time for our audience. Aside from those constitutional articles that provide for environmental protection and to have a home and to enjoy a healthy environment, the cornerstone of Indonesia's environmental protections lie in the 2009 Environmental Protection and Management Law. What were the parts of the 2009 law that provided communities with environmental safeguards? First of all, in, uh, Indonesia is one of the few countries in the region that has articulated an explicit expression of the right to a good and healthy environment in it, its constitutions. This constitutional provision has been translated further by the 2009 Environmental Protection and Management Law, or we call it EPM law. Historically, this law was part of a post-crisis reform package to set up legal and institutional arrangement that could address and prevent the failure of neoliberal free market economic model in the future. During its lawmaking process, however, uh, democratizations and human rights became important discourse in the hands to accommodate the public demands on a decentralized and human rights-based approach to environmental management, civil society organizations and concerned academics were invited in its deliberation process. As a result, although it has been strongly influenced by neoliberal models of uh, environmental governance that we can see from provision on the use of environmental economics instruments such as ecosystem services, emission trading, and so forth, 
at least several relatively progressive provisions uh, have managed to be inserted by the representatives of NGOs and uh, constant scholars. Among others, it include the anti-slap provisions or anti-strategic lawsuits against public participation in Article 66 of the APM law, which stipulates that everyone who struggles for the rights to a good and healthy environment cannot be prosecuted through a criminal procedure and cannot be sued through a civil procedure. This anti-slap provision has been very important legal basis mobilized by local communities or environmental defenders in fighting against any attempt using legal means to silence or to intimidate their struggles. Wow, so there's an explicit provision within the 2009 law called the anti-slap, which means that uh, people fighting for the environment can't be prosecuted or criminalised by law. Is that correct? Yep, correct. Is that normal in environmental laws uh, comparatively? Basically, in, in the regions, only Indonesia and the Philippines has the uh, uh, have the provisions on the anti-slap. In this context, it's really important to have this protection because when the environment is degraded, we need... Uh, and for the defender to step in in order to protect the environment. I guess these are very strategic provisions to uh, ensure that they can work in advocating the environment and, and, and being protected from the use of the abuse of law. Okay, so it's 2009, we've got this great new law. Can you give me some examples of how these laws were used effectively by communities? Well, uh, from my point of view, at the very least, the EPM law provides a legal basis for affected communities to demand for participation as well as to claim compensation for injuries caused by pollution and environmental degradation. From NGO point of view, the law is also provides them with a citizen lawsuit as a formalistic basis for pursuing strategic litigation in protecting the environment. With regard to examples, uh, I will choose the probably the Abdullah and other case in Alas Buluh Banyuwangi, for example. In this case, Alas Buluh villagers have been struggling against stone mining that has caused environmental and health problems. Now, one day, they organized a mass demonstration and blocked the village roads that were usually used by trucks, passed by the trucks owned by mining company to transport their materials. Consequently, based on this uh, mobilization, three of the villagers, including Abdullah, were charged by Article 162 of the mining law concerning a criminal offense for obstructing and disturbing a legal mining activity. The verdict of this court for the first instance and the appeal court, were they were found guilty and sent to prison for six months. However, by mobilizing Article 66 of the APM law concerning the anti-slap, Supreme Court finally acquitted them by considering that their conduct was not regarded as a criminal offense because they were acting in defending their rights to a good and healthy environment. I guess there could be a positive example of how APM law provides legal claim for affected communities to defend themselves against counterattack from the private companies. From this case, it shows how 
the APM law is able to be mobilized effectively to neutralize the draconian provision of the Article 162 of the mining law. However, we need to be cautious as well here because when it comes to the large-scale resource extraction that are closely related to national powerful tycoons, or we call it oligarchs, and also the state-backed development projects, mobilizing the 2009 APM law has remained challenging because the state uh, has been hijacked by these powerful elites and that they may use their, their economic power and political power to influence the judicial decision-making process. So basically what you're saying is there's such vested interests in um, natural resources from national elites that even though we had this IPM law and the anti-slap provisions, the idea of being criminalised or facing prosecution was constantly hanging over activists' heads regardless. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's true. The, the mobilisation has become effective where the case uh, is not really related to large-scale resource extraction or belong to the uh, national uh, economic and political elites. Um, I also understand, and you've written quite a bit about this, that the uh, another kind of, be- uh, I guess, strength of the IPM law was the Amdal procedure. Could you talk a bit about that? This Amdal stands for uh, Analysis Money Dampak Lingkungan, or we call it Environmental Impact Assessment. This is the requirement before you go on to undertake your project, to construct your project, you need to undergo an AMDAL process where all impacts of your project should be calculated, should be uh, analyzed. And also, if you have big impacts in the project, how would you manage the the impact? How would you uh, prevent uh, the, the impacts? It's very important. So in this process, the uh, participation is very important because not only the interests of the project proponent need to be taken into account, but also the interests of the affected communities and also the interests of the environment that pre- presented by the NGOs and concerned academy. Basically, the AMDAL procedures provide opportunity not only for affected communities to participate in the decision-making process and also giving uh, them um, access for information and access to justice as well, but also provide the legal basis for environmental NGOs and concerned academics to participate in the process. This participation is very important because concerned scholars and NGO activists might help affected communities to balance the unequal power relation during the process. Very often in the case where the project takes place in remote area of Indonesia, for instance, there's been an unequal uh, relation of power during the process because the affected communities very often should face uh, their interest against the corporation and also the government who backs the, the project. And also, they play important roles in the process by helping the affected communities to understand the technical terms and the technical concept that are very full in the AMDAL document. You can imagine how it is very hard to understand an AMDAL document because it's full full of mathematics or statistics or other technical terms. That's why the involvement of NGOs and concerned academics help them to translate this technical term to the affected communities. Okay, so you've pointed out that the AMDAL process is 
already it can be it can be quite vulnerable to inequalities in uh, knowledge and power. But was it otherwise a relatively successful process in terms of enabling environmental safeguards? Yeah, uh, if we see uh, several cases, there are some uh, success stories in how Amdal has been able to be intervened by affected communities. Uh, in the case of uh, reclamation of Tanjung Benoa in Bali, for instance, we know that the owners of this project uh, is Tommy Winata, one of the powerful national tycoon. But the project has been stuck at the Amdal process because the core communities, concerned academics, and also NGO has been able to provide a very strong arguments to refuse the projects. One of the argument is that the site where the reclamation will be proposed to be constructed is a second space. So basically a second space is only can be perceived by the local communities. So it's hard to be dealt with, with by the scientists and the government. That's why this has been stuck. Because in Amdal, not only the environmental impacts need to be assessed, but the impacts on local culture, the impact on social religious context also need to be analyzed, needs to be uh, 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 examined as well. And, and who did communities draw on to evidence? Uh, I imagine they, the word ev- evidence is an interesting word to use here, but to evidence that this uh, development would have an impact on the sacredness of that space. What kind of knowledges were invoked? Yeah, that's a very, very important question and also a very interesting question as well. But then uh, the local community, the affected communities in Tanjung Benoa, uh, know that they cannot argue based on science and they cannot argue based on legal provisions because basically uh, if you argue based on science then the company has more scientists than the local community and even scientists are coming from a reputable university in Indonesia just like IPB, uh, UGM, and so forth. So if they argue based on science, that will be easily tackled or addressed by those uh, reputable scientists. And also if they argue based on legal provisions, then we know that uh, the project is owned by national tycoons and close uh, to uh, the current regime and also close to the local uh, political elites, they can easily change the law. For instance, the special planning law has been changed in order to facilitate this reclamation project. First, the site was uh, regarded as a protected marine area. Then uh, after the Tommy Winata proposed this to build a resort uh, and uh, through reclamation, then the pleasure planning has been changed to designate this site as a utilization site with which uh, basically now legal to, to undertake reclamation. Being aware of this, that's why local communities try to find uh, a better arguments that cannot be or difficult to be dealt with by the scientists and the government. And they come up with the idea that there's a sacred space because uh, the, this bay has been used by the local communities for undertaking purification rituals and also for uh, undertaking 
other kinds of uh, uh, customary rituals. So that's why they use these arguments to fight against the reclamation project. And they rely on the local knowledge and also local knowledge that has been inherited by their ancestor. Wow, so that's amazing. So communities knowing that laws could just be changed in order to favour a tycoon like Tommy Winata invoked instead a different set of, do do you call them laws or cultural laws or cultural knowledge uh, that that government would find very difficult to combat effectively. Yeah, incredible in terms of a strategic edge. (laughs) Moving to some of your more recent work, such as the 2021 Environmental Defenders Report, I mean, that had some really worrying changes in terms of how law and environmental activism were interacting. It seemed to me that you were detailing a very worrying turn towards criminalisation and the use of the law against environmental defenders in order to silence or disorganise activism. Can you talk a bit more about, you know, what your research findings are in this area? Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, like in the Philippines, uh, environmental activism is also a dangerous business in Indonesia where you might get killed, repressed, or criminalized for defending your livelihood and the environment. And I will start with the background of this, why the slaps and the use of law has been common in uh, the post-authoritarian Indonesia. Uh, Basically, it's... uh, start by the notion of rule of law, where the notion of rule of law uh, that has been embraced by Indonesia in the post-authoritarian era has brought a a relatively new technique in dealing with dissent voices, including environmental defenders. Unlike in the authoritarian regime where environmental defenders against development projects were suppressed utilizing direct forms of coercion, such as forced conviction, disappearances, and even murder, in the post-authoritarian era, the use of law as an instrument of intimidation has become more common. Here, by accusing them of violating the law, especially criminal law, legal enforcement against environmental activists is seen as an implementation of the equality before the law principle. So the activists should prove themselves as not guilty, as accused by the public prosecutor before the court, based on an assumed to be fair and neutral legal procedure. Yeah, I think this is a really, really interesting point because I guess one of the criteria for Indonesia becoming a democracy is the idea is rule of law right is the idea that that lo- that law will be the means by which disputes and contestation occurs um, and so when we look at indonesia and we look at them we look at these disputes moving away from violent clashes or or direct coercion moving it to a different arena that being law we think of that as as some kind of advancement or some kind of development right that this is this is a positive thing for indonesia's democratization but you're suggesting actually it's a different kind of strategy is that the kind of the words you might use how you th- how do you think about it i would try to compare how 
the repressions during the uh, authoritarian regime and post-authoritarian regime. In the post-authoritarian regime, where the uh, reform, legal reform, uh, has been undertaken and the notion of rule of law, the human right has been uh, the uh, main discourse uh, in the in in the public. Uh, uh, in the general public, then the way to deal with uh, dissent voices, including frontal uh, defenders, has been changed. So you cannot deploy a direct coercion, uh, uh, for instance, force and convictions, just like before, but you might use the law to suppress the frontal defenders. So, and in this regard, very often when activists charge is charged by criminal code, then the government would say, uh, let respect the rule of law, let respect the equality before the law, let them prove themselves as not guilty uh, in the before the court. So it it it's assumed that the procedure the legal procedure before the court to be a neutral and also to be fair. Uh, and and also the use of law uh, in intimidating and silencing from the defenders, it also would prove that the government also respect the law and also the defenders who are regarded as the criminal in this regard because uh, using the law would um, uh, would create an image that the government respecting the law and using the law to uh, to uh, uh, to protect for instance uh, public order for instance that's why in Asia when we talk about uh, silencing from the defenders the use of public order criminal offense related to public orders has been very excessive uh, and 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 in this regard, the state has been playing an important role because the state agents who has the uh, the interpretation monopoly interpretation of what constitutes a public order, and and that's why uh, the use of law now has become more common to silence the the infrastructure defenders. And I'm not saying that the the uh, direct use of coercion uh, completely disappear from from the public eye. They do uh, uh, st uh, still being exercised by the police department, by the military. But if they uh, if they occur, uh, very often the government would justify it as a part of uh, of uh, of uh, dealing with uh, riots, dealing with. Uh, uh, public disorder, and also trying to uh, follow the procedure uh, that that respecting uh, human rights and democracy and so forth. So uh, they justify that the use of violence. But in fact, many cases that related to powerful tycoons, then the judicial decision making has been influenced by this structural context. That's why public defenders or frontal defenders uh, sent to prisons and get sanctioned through this court. And no one protests uh, by using this court, right? Because complying with the law is, is the, the indication of you being a good citizen. 
basically the two first cases attracted a general public on attacks of frontal defenders utilizing legal means were Yanis Sagorwa case in West Nusa Tenggara uh, uh, and the second one is Rinaldo case in North Sulawesi in early 20s. The actor behind those two cases was Newmont Company, a U.S.-based mining company. Then Newmont relied on a common strategy used by companies in the U.S., how they silence, intimidate, and even punish activists by using law, especially defamation. Yeah? Uh, in the U.S., they use criminal defamation if an activist uh, defame uh, uh, reputation from the corporation and they uh, they put the lawsuit uh, before the court and then fight in the court to to uh, to prove that the uh, the uh, injuries uh, has been there com- committed by the federal defenders in Indonesia it's been relatively the cha- uh, different the use of the criminal sanction the use of the crimes has been dominant compared to uh, civil procedure. So, uh, based on my uh, research, my current research at the Max Planck Institute, I found that 75 slap cases during 2010-2022 involving 198 in front of the defenders, five uh, of them were women. And in terms of the mechanisms, 91% of these cases were pursued through criminal procedures in which crimes against public order has been the biggest contributor for this percentage. And this is also related to the common forms in advocating environmental issues, such as the use of streets demonstration, blockage, and direct action, in which these forms of action and from the defenders become easier for targeted by the companies and also state officers and state intelligence to provoke them, turn into riot, for instance, turn into breaking the law or, or concerning person and property, for instance. And then if they then being provoked, then they easily get caught by the police and then they will be charged by uh, conducting public disorder. And in addition, the use of crime against state ideology and symbols has also been alarming. This can be seen from the case of Budipego in Banyuwangi, who was accused of spreading prohibited communist uh, teachings. And by taking this dominant use of crimes against public order, threats to state ideology and symbols, it shows an interesting picture of the use of law to intimidate and to silence the other defenders in the country. Unlike in the global north, where SLAP has uh, dominantly filed by the corporation, in Indonesia, the main actors in silencing other defenders is the state agencies who have the monopoly to interpret what constitutes as a disturbance of the public orders and a threat of the state ideology. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the actual relationship. So you you talk about um, that different government agencies like the prosecutor and the police and the judges end up siding with the state um, and siding with the government to criminalise these environmental defenders. How do you imagine that that relationship 
comes about. Is it as crude as, you know, someone, the judge getting a phone call saying, you know, these guys must be put away for life? Or is it about them replicating state ideology or understanding on a tacit level that this is the kind of outcome they need to produce? How do you understand that relationship between the state's interests and the actors that are put at the forefront of enacting or producing those interests? Well, um, yeah, I will try to understand the relation of judges in this regard. So uh, I have been teaching the certifications training for judges in environmental law conducted by the Indonesian Supreme Court for quite some time. In the class, my observation is that this seems to be critical to develop problems in Indonesia. They do understand the natures of the current problems, uh, which urgently need their active role to take part in responding to the problems. However, once they turn to be a judge in the real case, especially cases involving NGOs or affected communities against the government, they appear to calculate the impacts of their decision to their personal career trajectories as well as, and more importantly, on the court relationship to the government. I would like to give you an example. This is clearly be seen in the case concerning the constructions of a coal power plant in Cherubon, West Java, where the court explicitly declares in the decision that law should not be a constraint to economic development. Rather, law should facilitate development, meaning that the court should take its stand to support the construction of the Chiroban coal power plant because it is part of the government's national strategic projects in the public interest. So this shows how the national ideology, the, the overriding uh, uh, political agenda of the government has been internalized by the court itself. And in fact, in a country where the government has been hijacked by the interests of the powerful in economics elites, what constitutes a development project in, in the public interest is that the development for the interests of the elites, of course. When we talk about coal power plant, of course, we talk about the coal industry, who owns, who controls the coal industry. And from the case, we can see how the structural context in which the court operates appears to strongly influence judicial decision-making in the environmental adjudication. It's clearly shown by the rationalization on the need for undertaking an economic development. So even the court that should be impartial, should be based on legal expertise, using economic development as uh, the parameters to come up with the decisions. Right. I guess looking at all of this from, you know, as a package, it makes me feel very disillusioned about the ability of law to bring about uh, you know, positive environmental safeguards. Um, you know, your work also talks about climate change litigation and its potential to force governments to reduce carbon emissions. You know, seeing the trajectory of environmental law over the past 20 years, what hope do you have for law 
to to help us um you know save the environment save our save our planet given um that it's it's law that's going to be necessary in order to force our governments to comply with reducing carbon emissions well uh, my work uh, on climate change litigation has been motivated by the dominant optimistic approach in the literature where the discussion on climate change is uh, tends to be limited by taking successful cases. In Indonesia, I understand that climate change litigation provides an opportunity to challenge the status quo lies in the coal industry, and at the same time, joining the global struggle for uh, climate justice. Precisely because the litigation attempts to challenge the coal industry, Climate litigation in the country, especially in the energy sector, has largely failed, like in Chirbon case I mentioned before. Having said that, uh, I do still see climate litigation has something to offer for environmental movements, because in the absence of comprehensive, ambitious, and systematic policies in addressing the climate crisis, the court will remain to be another forum to hold government accountable to address the climate crisis. The basic idea here is that if we don't mobilize courts only because of our distrust that the court will not work for our environmental concern, it will mean that we maintain the courts to be the protector of the status quo and they will have a little incentive to assess their position in the current climate crisis. Mobilizing the courts, from my point of view, uh, in this regard, also means demanding them to take a side in addressing our biggest environmental problems, uh, namely the climate crisis that has caused by the current carbon incentive economic development model exercised by the government in those places. By mobilizing court, we ask them, we demand the court to assess their position in in the side of the environmental movement to address this climate crisis. And and also, uh, I'm aware that we cannot change the political economic structure in the country through the courts within which it is embedded. But at the very least, we need to keep pushing the existing limit of the law and courts are one of the arena to undertake these struggles. Keep pushing. I think that's a beautiful place to end this podcast, Agung. That's a, t- a good I'll message. i try to <laughs> give a little hope. <laughs> yes, otherwise you're just being cynical and doing nothing, right? Thanks again to Associate Professor Agung Wardana, Humboldt Fellow at the Max Planck Institute uh, and Associate Professor of Law at Gajamada University. Talking Indonesia would return in a fortnight, but you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Jackie Baker. Bye for now.